You're listening to In Network, Nordic's podcast series where we explore healthcare and technology with experts from around the globe. Hello, and welcome to the In Network podcast feature, Designing for Health. I'm Nordic's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Craig Joseph. I recently sat down with Lolita Abiankar, Family Physician and Clinic Medical Director at Carbon Health. Lolita talks about her background in family medicine, the big differences between primary care and urgent care, and her exploration of change management. We also dive deep into the increasing technological skill set required of physicians, understanding new workflows, and the secret of how to speak to engineers. Let's plug in. Welcome, Dr. Abiankar, to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. We, I, I'm super excited uh, to talk with you today because you are at the um, crossroads of where a lot of uh, physician um, designer technologists want to be. So you work for a private company called Carbon Health, mm-hmm. and you all are in the middle of, of um, flying this plane as you design it, I believe. Correct. Very much so. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, your background. I, I know that you're a family physician. How did you end up at Carbon Health? Um, well, that's an interesting story. So I graduated from residency in 2017 and I started working at a um, federally qualified health center in Brooklyn, in New York. And I probably developed my clinical chops there in a way that in an urban environment, I was seeing all sorts of patients, regardless of you know, age, regardless of background, mental health issues. Uh, I was seeing prenatal care. Like it was really lovely to be able to build out my outpatient chops in that way. Um, Then the pandemic hit. It was a, uh, Brooklyn, of course, was one of the hardest hit in terms of the entire country. And I carried a lot of grief for, for a really long time. For that whole summer, I would say it was, it was really challenging to practice and be there for patients who had loved ones in the hospital who were getting sick, who I was trying to keep out of the hospital. Like I have, my colleagues and I have stories of like trying to diarese patients over Zoom who should not have been, right? Like they should probably have been admitted, but we were trying so hard to keep people out of the hospital as primary care doctors that it became this huge burden. And ultimately I think I realized I had, maybe known this a year before, um, that I wanted to be involved in helping people design the tools that we use to take care of our patients. And I think historically physicians have really had that influence. A lot of people have designed their own tools for the things that they needed in the past. And electronic health records are a tool that we use every single day that don't really have that much physician input or influence because you can't learn to, unless you have that like engineering or software development background. And most people kind of pick one and not the other. So there's not a lot of that kind of flying by the seat of your pants, making these tools in order for like making a stethoscope or something like that. It's not as tangible in that way. Um, So I had known that I'd wanted to get involved in something creative like that for a while. And the pandemic kind of derailed that. But I also learned a lot about technology. We, you know, we moved over to telehealth in within a week. And that taught me a lot about like what you can do and how you can actually offer services from a virtual perspective. Like you can diarese patients over Zoom. It's possible. You can make sure that you're setting them up with the infusions that they need without actually having to go to the hospital, like for, um, 
I had a couple of patients who like desperately needed either it was chemotherapy or iron infusions. And I was able to like get those things done. Um, it's not an ideal state. And so I was really curious to see who was out there, who was, um, kind of making changes and, and setting, setting up a, a, a system where you're allowing yourself to use technology in a way that can actually help patients. Um, so I was looking at, so at some point I decided that, you know, I was really trying to, uh, look for opportunities that allowed me to kind of expand that knowledge base as well. Like, how do you talk to designers? How do you talk to engineers? Like, what are people looking for? What kind of clinical input do people need when they're actually building out these tools? Do they even have clinical input in a lot of situations? Um, I think I decided to, I got a really cool project actually at the FQHC. We got a grant to help uh, support geriatric care at our practice. It, we had like a multi-practice uh, company in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and like the Mid-Hudson River Valley. And we had received this grant to do geriatric care. And the I had been partnered with a geriatrician, also a family doc, who was very into like, how do we build education around geriatric care? And my thought was, well, it's Part of it is, yes, like lecture series, making sure that the residents know what they're doing, making sure that attendings and other people who are providing the care know what they're doing. But in order to make it sustainable, um, having that decision-making tool somehow embedded into the EHR is going to be far more effective longitudinally than not. And so we worked with our CMIO and... Um, and some of the social workers actually to find, to identify pain points within geriatric care. So like durable medical equipment, that's a huge one. So how do you streamline that? How do you allow, um, how do you allow a clinician to find all of the information that they actually need in order to take care of somebody who has multiple chronic conditions and who you need to be able to like assess for, um, physical, physical and mental deterioration. And so we were able to create like a snapshot within Epic, which is the HR that we were using at the time. And that really whetted my appetite for like, cool, this is a way that you can actually help people take care of patients uh, more effectively. And so when I left that practice, I was really looking for, you know, the idea of a startup was fascinating to me. And so I was looking for different places that were, that were trying to be innovative within primary care. And Carbon, I think, provided me the most support in terms of the skills that I wanted to build. And so that's, that's why, that's why carbon. So what does, so first of all, carbon health, I believe is, uh, principally located on a different ocean. Uh, were you aware that it was a different ocean from the Atlantic to the Pacific? Yes, I was aware that it is. Okay, someone told you about that. Someone did tell me about that. Okay. Yes. I had to fly across the country in order to start my job here. Um, that I think some of that was also pandemic decision-making. My family lives in Arizona, getting back here during the pandemic was really challenging. And so, you know, my, my 12 hour driving radius was kind of the, the thing that I wanted to make sure that I had. Um, and I think, you know, New York is a really transitory city. And as much as I love it, I think it was time if, if it wasn't New York, I think that San Francisco was the other option for me. So I'm in the Bay now. And, um, yeah, and really, really falling in love with the Bay in different ways. Awesome. So what does carbon health do? 
I, I, as I understand it, when you, you first started, it was focused mostly on kind of episodic urgent care. Yeah. So they have, you know, carbon has, um, been an urgent care practice primarily. And I think at, we re or we introduced primary care into the practices about two years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, two to three, three years ago. And, um, yeah. And since then, I think that has been a challenge of its own. Like how do you take a primarily urgent care practice and build in successful primary care? Um, it's been, it's been interesting and fun. And what are the, what are the, the big differences between primary care and, and urgent care? I, I, they overlap a lot more than I, I would have thought actually, um, pre pandemic. Oh yeah. How, how so? I'm, I'm curious. Well, I, you know, I, I used to think of them as having very little overlap, you know, urgent care mm. was, uh, yeah, you know, I, my kid's got an ear uh, or my kid might have an ear infection or I have this rash or I'm having a cough and I might have pneumonia or an exacerbation of my asthma, which, mm-hmm. which is, you know, certainly episodic, but it, it's usually kind of, in my mind, self-limited diseases and, mm-hmm. um, and primary care. Again, I have the, the the, my focus as a pediatrician has always been a little different than, you know, for adults, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, most of what I did, I'd say maybe half was, was certainly that kind of episodic care, but the other half was, you know, your traditional, Hey, how's this child developing? And mm-hmm. what are all the things that they're not here to tell me about that I have to figure out on my own? Cause mm-hmm. they're purposefully not going to tell me, or they're just not aware that, you know, that they're developed, that the child's development is off or there's, you know, there's something there. And, um, mm-hmm. to me, those were different things, but, but boy, urgent care has really kind of become, uh, Hey, as long as you don't need to be admitted, we're going to, we're going to try and handle it. I, I honestly think that urgent care only exists in this country because we don't have good primary care. Like it exists because we have a gap, because we have a, a lack of supply when it comes to primary care, because everybody wants to go to their own doctor when they're not feeling well. Everybody wants that person to check out their ear if they're feeling like they're having an ear infection so that they can also talk about, you know, like you connect the dots in a different way. I think we were talking about before where it, it is relationship building and you want the relationship that you have built to be the person who's taking care of your episodic care as well. Um, that's what ideal primary care. That's what that small town doctor ideal Norman Rockwell painting is about. Urgent care takes over what primary care doesn't currently have space for, okay. but it's all the same. Like I, I was trained in, you know, all of the, like I, I, I did an urgent care shift recently and I had like a, a kid who came in with a dislocated elbow and I was able to snap it back into place. But I've done that in my primary care practice as well before. And, and so those little things I think really overlap. And, and in my case, if I have a patient who comes in for on the primary care side who has, you know, maybe they have some acute complaint, I'm able to get their preventative care done at the same time. And so that I think that's to me, urgent care is really just an offshoot of primary care. Love it. No, I think it's a, uh, it's a hot take and I, I would argue it's the, it's absolutely, uh, spot on. Um, so what are some of the struggles? I'm assuming there are struggles, uh, as carbon health kind of moves from 
traditionally just urgent care and then starts in the last two or three years adding primary care. Are you, do they speak your language? Um, are, are you kind of uh, showing them new and, and uh, different ways of thinking as you're helping them move? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of us who are doing primary care here in different capacities. I think that everybody has their own input and um, yeah, it definitely is a language. Uh, there's a translation component for sure, especially when you have people who are trained in emergency medicine on the clinical side who are kind of running things um, to make sure that, that that longitudinal care outlook is something that's um, supported and evaluated and um, prioritized, especially as we're building out primary care like that, that definitely does lead to some really interesting discussions. Um, not to say that, you know, I, I think that there is something to be said about, like, if you really, truly want to, to provide care in a innovative way, um, you have to be able to think outside of the box and outside of like traditional clinical hierarchies. And also those clinical hierarchies like exist for a reason. Uh, we've been trained and we're so entrenched in them that, um, that kind of moving or shifting away from that sort of thought process sometimes becomes like you, you can't, you can't teach people who have been ingrained in that system new tricks. Um, cause that's just not what, how they've built their intuition on things. Um, so that's also something that's really interesting that I've experienced, especially talking to designers and engineers at carbon who are building out the EHR, like who really want to rede redesign things to make them look pretty. And I'm like, no, no, like, blood pressure has to come first, then heart rate has to come after that. And that's just how we're used to reading it. Um, don't mess it up. <laughs> um, which I think can be sometimes, you know, really constraining. Yeah. Constraining for you or constraining for, uh, the, constraining the, for the, them, I think. Yeah. 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 So let me pick on that a little bit. Um, so you're, you're dealing with, um, with uh, software developers and engineers who mm -hmm. are used to often living in a, um, you know, a, a black and white world. And, and you're now kind of exposing uh, to some extent, some of the gray where, Hey, this is not exactly right. And I know that we're violating your design rule by making this look a little ugly and, and mm. data intense, but in day to day, you know, come hang out with me and you'll see how many minutes I have to uh, see this mm -hmm. patient and move on mm -hmm. to the next patient. And I can't mm -hmm. be, you know, flipping around a, a nice screen. So, so how do you kind of handle that communication? Um, is there, is there a secret to speaking engineer that uh, we all should know? That is, that is the crux of what I'm learning. I think there are times where I, one of the, one of the serious philosophical questions I had over the last six months was, how do you tell someone that their baby is ugly in a way that doesn't shut them down and make them feel like you hate them? <laughs> and I think that that's the skill that I'm trying to hone is that how do you give feedback in a way that is constructive and kind and thoughtful and also appreciates the other person for what they've done? Because a lot of times people have poured a lot of time and energy into some of these features that for me on the clinical side are completely useless. And I could use the word useless and then I don't want to like, but at the same time, like, how are we going to make something that actually is useful? And that's something that I'm really learning and, and is a big, um, is a big skill. I think, um, I was just talking to somebody who, you know, was a, 
was a physician on, on our design team recently about like how we like traditional design tells you to drill down the problem to the narrowest that it can be and to solve that problem and to then build up from that. And I have learned how to do that definitely over the last, you know, two years that it's sometimes I'm, I don't come in with solutions. I don't come in hot with solutions anymore, even though that that's how I've been trained. And that's kind of what you do in medicine is that you're taught to, you know, stick to your diagnosis. Like you might be wrong, but stick to it. Convince me. In this case, I think that I try to give as much information as I can so that I'm very, 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 very clear about what the problem is. And so that's been a, that's been a change in terms of how I talk about it. And so one of the ways to give that feedback, I think, is to make sure that like, oh, cool, like this is great. And this is what I actually need it to do. And the people that you're talking to are usually smart enough to put two and two together that they're like, oh, this is completely useless for her. Um, and also the other piece of it is, is, is that in a clinical setting, sometimes y- you can drill down to one parameter, but it's really important to have like an orthogonal parameter included as well so that you're building out from multiple use cases because otherwise you end up creating something that's too narrow of a solution. Sure. So, so empathy seems to be a big, a big player. (laughs) And they Um, talk about that in design, like designers talk about empathy all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, it was kind of a, um, um, I I was asking you a question. I knew there was no great answer. Um, you know, how, how do you kind of convince them that, Hey, this is, this is what I need and it's not as pretty and it's kind of basic, but it's really going to get the job done. And, and, um, uh, to that end, do, do you have, do you host a lot of, uh, developers and engineers in your clinics? How, how do they learn what you need? Yeah. I think up until recently, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> it's not a great answer, but I think that they, there is a push to make sure that they're involved in clinics and that they're, you know, following and shadowing people. I know that designers in the past who have been here have been really mindful about doing that. I know that there's people on the team that I'm able to reach out to who are very open and really responsive when it comes to uh, the concerns that I have, even if it is like, yes, we've thought about this and this is why we did this, right? That's also the two-way street that a a good designer, when they're talking to somebody with a clinical background, needs to be able to do. Um, That often appeases a lot of those like hot and bothered feelings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, why is this happening? Oh, this is why this is happening. So you had to make a decision between this feature and that feature and you decided to go with this one. And I understand why. And I'll make it work. Like I am, you know, as clinicians, as physicians, I think especially um, you learn how to make it work in suboptimal settings. Uh, If, you know, residency, you learn sick and not sick and you learn how to make sure that things get done. And so, so yeah, so I think that that sort of two-way communication is is integral when you're building out something that's creative and interesting. Yeah, it's um uh it, it's a truism. I, I once went uh when I was on the vendor side, I went to a go live and um this this uh nurse said, "Hey, look what happens when I click this very specific set of, you know, uh the specific mm-hmm. workflow." And I'm like, "Oh, that that's clearly a mistake." It, that I'll, I will go and, and see if I can fix that. And, um, it turned out it was not, it was, it was mm. kind of like, oh no, that's a design feature. 
And when mm-hmm. I went and talked to the developer, uh, when I went back to the, to the mothership and talked to the developer and he said, well, we know to, how to fix that. We, it's on our list, but it's been a low priority. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're, you're going to come with me to the next go live. Mm-hmm. And um, I want you to sit next to me to look when that nurse looks at you like you don't have any idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, you know, I want you to tell them that, oh, yeah, we know about this, but uh, it's been it's a low priority. So sometimes, you know, I, I need them to feel the pain that I'm yeah. feeling and that you're yeah. feeling and that the users are feeling just a, and it, it often can change their their priorities or what they think is important. And Absolutely. I, um, yeah, they don't have unlimited time. Um, Absolutely. So you were just, you were mentioning being a resident and, and learning how to focus and, and get things done. Um, change management. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pivoting, but I'm not really change management is something that, that you learn how to do uh, as yeah. a, as a, physician in training. We are yeah. constantly trying to manage change of our patients. Um, hey, you know, all of those uh, foods that you're eating are not helping your diabetes or your hypercholesterolemia or, or those kinds of things. Um, you've said that you've undergone, I think in this job and maybe your previous one, a fellowship of change, which yeah. I love. I, I, would, I would hate to see the board questions that you <laughs> you must have done when you did this fellowship of change, but, um, how, what, what is the, you know, what is this fellowship of change? What have you learned about change management that that maybe helps you deal not only with your patients, but also with your peers? Yeah. 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 I just, I, I said this again at a meeting this morning where I was like, yeah, this has been a two-year fellowship in change management. Um, I, I've learned, I think so as a startup, I think, or being a part of a startup, you have, there's, there's a number of decisions that are made. There's a rapidness to it that doesn't actually exist within most kind of legacy institutions, especially in healthcare. You learn change management in residency, um, in order to like, maybe it's your, maybe you're a senior and you're trying to teach someone, you know, how to do things. Maybe there's, um, rapid change happening with the patient, right? Like the, you're trying to convince perhaps there's like an ICU situation and you have to convince the family that it's time to let go. Um, there's a lot of different change conversations that you end up having in the clinical setting. When the company makes decisions or when there is new rollouts or new workflows or um, just, I, I think in this economic environment, in order to survive, there have been some really challenging decisions that we've had to go through. And how do you make sure that the team is along for the ride? that you're being honest and open and able to kind of talk to your, your colleagues about how to navigate these changes and the emotions that come up. I think, you know, at Carbon, we've talked a lot about like how to make sure that you're kind of emotionally on the same page and that it's okay to be in that kind of like anger, apathy, because that happens with change also. Like you're going through that, that, um, you're going through the five stages of grief anytime any change happens. Um, and so really, how do you use that framework to continue? And, and at the end of the day, it's also like there's a, there's a financial piece to it. And so it is like, you know, I, I hate saying this from like this altruistic clinical, um, like maybe somewhat of a philosopher background. <laughs> um, you still have to keep your doors open and your business running. And so how do you reconcile all of that is really what I have been learning over the last two years. And it's been really remarkable to see, to be more patient. I think that 
you know, I thought that nothing would phase me after residency and like, no, things really still did. And, you know, much less, I think, phases me now after having been at a startup for two years. So I'm hearing that you're recommending that all physicians do some startup training. Um, maybe. It's, it's not maybe, a bad idea. Not. It's not for everyone. <laughs> all right. That's for sure. It's not for everyone. Well, that's fair. Um, whether you work at a startup or not, though, um, you're you're using technology if you're in healthcare uh, mm-hmm. for yeah. for sure in the United States and in yeah. a lot of the the big countries. Um, you've mentioned about drinking from a fire hose of technology, yes, and and that's a quote I love because we don't really think about it. We just it's an expectation we have of yeah. of physicians and clinicians um, nowadays that well, this is how you do your job. You know, you still, you still might have a stethoscope and a reflex hammer and, um, surgeons still have scalpels, but none of them can do their jobs without putting in orders or prescribing medications or looking up lab results. And all of that requires the, the, the fire hose of technology. So, so I, I think my question is, how do you, um, how does a physician figure out what's the most important thing? Cause when I'm drinking from that fire hose, Mm. I'm clearly not getting everything. I'm not, I can't swallow all that water. And so some of it's going to go in, in one ear and out the other ear. Mm. Um, how, how is one to prioritize or, or what suggestions do you have uh, that you use? Yeah, no, there, I mean, there's definitely like a, on, on top of that, it's not just technology, but there's like a deluge of data and there's not, I mean, I have a lot of patients, especially especially being in the Bay area, like where I'm practicing who are obsessed with data. And a lot of times I have to be like, what's the point? Like, what are we actually looking for here? What are we actually, like, what decision are we making with this data? Is this helpful data? Or are you just looking at data for data's sake? Similarly, I think, you know, technological interventions, um, like we've wanted for a long time, oh, why can't I just get my note done magically based on like what I'm talking about with the patient? And that's happening now, right? We're seeing natural language processing. We're seeing artificial intelligence or machine learning based programs that are helping to create like notes and helping to mine information in charts and helping to kind of add on and really optimize what somebody can do in a patient room. And I think that it's, I mean, it's, I'm interested in this stuff and it's so hard for me to stay on top of it. And I know people who are, you know, I am, I admire people who are able to like just really entrench themselves in the technology space and understand all of the background and like the drama and, you know, whatever else exists with what's being developed in order to help with healthcare. I think from the fire hose, what my hope and intention is, is that if we get more practicing people on board to actually have those conversations about what's necessary and what's not and why maybe minds can change in both directions. And so you have a lot of people who are building out technology without clinical input. You have a lot of clinicians who are maybe like really just choosing to take that Luddite path, which I can understand. You don't want to deal with any of it. Um, How do you create that dialogue and that platform so that the fire hose doesn't seem as intimidating? I think that's the best answer that I have. I I don't know what what you drink and what you don't. I was just hoping you would tell me what to drink, but, um, yeah. so it's I'm not I'm, the Kool-Aid. Yeah. There, 
See, sometimes it's not so much important to know what to drink, but what not to drink. Not so to don't, drink. don't drink the Kool-Aid. All right. I'm totally down. I'm totally down with that. Um, so uh, I, another thing that, you know, you and I, when we were preparing for this podcast, we're talking about was relationship building. Yeah. And, and you had said something that I thought was uh, um, in, incredibly wise. And uh, there's a lot of umph there, which was the number one job of any physician is relationship building, especially yeah. in primary care. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know that people have been talking about this, especially like what is the skill set of physicians as we have all of these technological tools that are being built out? Um, I think it is, I, at the end of the day, it's the relationship. Like if you are going to build primary care the number one thing that needs to be optimized for is that relationship. I think the example that I had used with you was of a patient of mine who recently, a new patient, his physician of like 30 years had retired. He came in, I was doing just a basic exam on him and I heard his heart and he had a really, really loud murmur. And I asked him about it and he said, you know, I, I have had this murmur for a really long time. And I was like, it sounds particularly loud and harsh. Like, I don't have a prior echo on you. Like I feel like it's time if it's been more than like three to five years, which it probably has because pandemic, uh, I want you to go get another echo. And so we sent him back to a cardiologist who had all of his stuff. And it turns out that his, that his aorta was so stenosed at that point that he needed a replaced, uh, a replacement. The magic of that was not that I caught this or anything like that. I think it was really as he was in that decision-making process, because, you know, he's an older gentleman, there's a lot going on in his life right now. They were like trying to, you know, do renovations. And also there was business decisions and financials. There was so much going on that this felt like it was not necessarily a priority at the time. And so I actually was able to have like multiple visits. Like he would just come in and like ask, like, what do you think? Like, what should I do? And I'm not going to be the one doing the replacement in any way, shape or form, but I am a guide and a counselor and I have been in the system for long enough to be able to knowledgeably talk about what I have seen in a way that hopefully like I, I try not to be like, oh, this is how it is. Don't do this, do this. I think my job is really to serve as somebody who is laying out the pieces and trying to figure out what that, that best choice for that patient actually is. And it may be something that I wouldn't do and that's okay. But that relationship, like without that kind of back and forth, um, I mean, ultimately everything worked out. Like his blood pressure is now well controlled. His murmur isn't really loud anymore and he ended up getting it done. But it was because we had those like really candid conversations that now when he comes back, I'm able to talk to him about so much more. Um, and so, yeah, like, and, and anytime you have that, right? Like the, the cardiologist or, you know, a surgeon isn't necessarily going to have that longitudinal relationship. They're not necessarily, even, even if they know, or if they've studied that open heart surgery, for example, is more likely to lead to like feeling like loss of purpose and depression. Like they're not the ones who are going to be able to counsel and talk to them before or after about those kinds of things. And that's where primary care really comes into play. Yeah. I, I love, I love that story because you know, the idea that, um, uh, this person goes and sees several specialists per, per chance they, they saw a cardiologist and then per, uh, a surgeon um, who are both telling them like, hey, you need to do this thing. Uh, and yet, who do they go back to? That's you. Um, yeah. 
the person with the least experience in terms of replacing cardiac valves. Um, And, you know, I've had that experience too. Like you're asking me, I I sent you to the smart people, let the smart people tell you. Um, But they they do want to hear it from you because they trust you and they've got this long-term relationship with you and the cardiologist, maybe they've seen once or twice and the surgeon only once for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's a, it is, but it's hard to, it's hard to judge that, right? How do you measure that? If I'm a big, I'm running a big healthcare system. How do I yeah. know which of my doctors have good relationships with their patients? I, yeah. I, it's hard to know. I, I can potentially know which ones have patients who are getting their colonoscopies regularly. Right. Right. You can also, what you can do, I, a friend of mine is an informaticist and family doc uh, in Texas. And she was talking about how like there are, there are docs who are able to get their patients to do the colonoscopy. What's the magic sauce that they have? There are docs who tell people to do their colon cancer screenings and their fit kit is never returned and the colonoscopy is never scheduled. And so like, what is that secret sauce? Like, that's where I think we should really be, you know, we should be digging into like what that is because that is what primary care is about. Yep. Hallelujah. Yeah. Is what I, is what I say to you. Well, that, uh, on this high note, let me, um, you know, start to kind of start at the, at the, uh, at the ending. Um, one of the things we love to do uh, on this podcast is ask folks to describe to us one or two things that are so well designed, they bring them joy. And uh, often this has absolutely nothing to do with healthcare or medicine or technology. Sometimes it does. So what are those things? Are there one or two things that you think are just amazingly well-designed? I mean, okay. So when you said bring me joy, that's like a different parameter. And I would say that Golden Gate Park, which is what I live next to now, is one of the best designed parks. And this is somebody who lived in New York for seven years. Um, And it brings me a lot of joy. I think it's like designed in this way that is wild and beautiful and there's always more to find and more to get lost in. The other example I think, and this is like from being uh, in New York for seven years, is that the subway system is why it it doesn't bring me joy. So I think that's why I changed my answer. Um, But it is the great equalizer in a way that I think healthcare and primary care could be as well. Um, You see people who are you know, it, it's the fastest way sometimes to get from point A to point B, like faster than a car, faster than walking. And so you see people who are suited and booted and probably sometimes worth millions of dollars next to people who slept in the shelter last night. And everybody is on equal footing and everybody uses the subway and it is, it is functional for the most part, almost always, sometimes. And also it is, um, you know, it, it is something that is kind of like the lifeblood of the city. And so that is the other thing that I think has been, that has been well-designed or it serves its purpose, I think, which is a different parameter for design, I think, um, than just joy. That's great. Um, I, I love the idea about the, the well-designed park and, and sometimes it sounds like part of the thing that you love and sparks joy is that it, there are areas where it's just not designed, right? It's kind of just wild and it's, but it's curated in a way. So there's like redwoods there. It's also curated in a way that feels like you're, you're in, you're going on a hike, but guaranteed some 
parks and rec person knows every single one of those paths and, you know, has cut every single one of those bushes or something like that, just so that they, they feel that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what a pleasure it has been to speak with you. Really appreciate it. I, I, I've certainly learned a lot and, um, and I'm uh, thankful to you. And I, I look forward to all the great things that, uh, that you're going to do and that Carbon's going to do with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been really lovely speaking with you as well. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about Dr. Abiyankar or Carbon Health, visit carbonhealth.com or check out the show notes for this episode. Check back for more episodes of Designing for Health wherever you listen to podcasts or on nordicglobal.com. Till next time, we'll see you in network. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast as well. 